Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. On the second half of today's episode, we'll read paragraphs 659 through 682, and today's selection focuses on the ascension of Jesus and the end times. So you're probably familiar with the term the Paschal Mystery, or the mystery mystery of the Pash, the Lamb. And this is the mystery, the mysterious events, um, mystery in the sense that there's so much meaning packed into it. We can take a lifetime, and even after that, an eternity to unpack the meaning of it all, of the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So his passion, his suffering, his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. The shorthand I used to use with my students was the PDRA, the Passion, Death, Resurrection, and Ascension of Jesus Christ. So today's reading focuses on the A of the Paschal Mystery, or the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Um, Today's reading selection talks about some wild things. Okay, So the Catechism talks about the quote-unquote end times, about the Antichrist, about the final coming of the glorious Messiah. But I'd like to direct our attention to, once again, that both-and-ness of our faith. So on the one hand, it is wild and dramatic, and there will come a final moment for each and every one of us and for the world, and that's something about which we should quake in our boots. Okay, It's a a final moment for each and every one of us and, and for all of mankind. So it is dramatic. On the other hand, or at the same time, simultaneously, it is also so beautifully simple and mundane how that that end time comes about. Okay, it's through these day in, day out decisions where we're we're choosing for or against Christ through our quiet, humble, often boring choices and tasks. So again, there will be a decisive moment after which there are no more moments of choosing. However, the decisive moments are simultaneously now, and now, and now. The past is done, the future has not arrived, and might never come as we imagine it. And so we simply have the present, the now. Many saints have said that the present moment is the closest thing we have to eternity because we can do something about it using our human faculties of intellect to know and of free will to choose, excuse me, free will to choose. But we can't do much about the past and we can't do much about the future. We can, however, do a lot about the now. Again, it's often simple and humble and boring. So I can choose not to gossip in this one instance right now. I could choose today or tomorrow morning to get up at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. and to pray just for the day. I could choose to turn off the TV or put down my phone and be present to the person in front of me, however interesting or uninteresting that person may be. I could choose to take a cold shower today or fast on bread and water today or give up sweets or alcohol or something else today before I make this grand commitment to fast every Wednesday and Friday or to give up these things all 40 days of Lent. How many times have I said to myself that I would like to do some grand and sweeping thing, like I would like to be a person who fasts every Wednesday and Friday, or 
I would like to be a person who loses 10 pounds before the summer. Or I would like to be a person who reads more. But I haven't taken the steps to do these things. Everything we do reveals and defines us. So again, with our human faculties of an intellect, which is able to know, a will, which is able to choose, as we make decisions, we think through things and then act, we're revealing what kind of people we are, and we're further defining who we are. We're making us into certain kind of human beings. So when I choose not to gossip, again, in one small instance, I'm becoming less of a gossiper. When I get up early to pray one day, I'm becoming a more prayerful person. When I turn off the TV or put down my phone in one small, simple, boring, mundane instance, I'm becoming a more present and intentional person. When I make one small sacrifice in that moment, I'm becoming more disciplined, more selfless, again, more intentional. When it comes to the final judgment, it's not a scary surprise, like which way will I go, heaven or hell? But it's a culmination of things that I've decided again and again and again. I joke with my best friend, Teresa. She is such a love, such a positive, uh, cheerful, supportive friend, um, where I joke that she's, you know, like my number one cheerleader. And um, she, at, at some point, you know, when she was saying like, oh, you're so good at this, or you've done such a great job with that. I said, Teresa, could you be at my judgment day with me so that when Jesus is like, okay, Becca, um, let's take a look at your life, Teresa could step in and be like, no, no, Lord, look at what she did here and see how she did this. You should totally bring her into heaven. <laughs> so thanks, Teresa, for all that. Um, but it's it's a culmination of things we have decided again and again and again. Um, there are some amazing deathbed conversion stories we hear about. You know, So someone might have lived his or her life in one way, and then all of a sudden, just before death, realizes, wow, given another opportunity, I would have lived completely differently. Sees the light, maybe literally like St. Paul when he gets knocked off his horse, or like Bob Marley apparently had a deathbed conversion right before he died. So the, these things do happen. Um, however, I think for the majority of us, it's just a culmination of things we have decided throughout our lives. My brother, who is a Catholic priest, was preaching one time about our mom, who for much of her life loved going to daily mass, going out for lattes afterwards uh, with her friends, and then spending a lot of her time with you know, those friends and her family, her husband, her children, her grandchildren. At one point, she got very sick, and then she got COVID. And how did she live her life? She continued to go to daily mass, drink lattes, and spend time with her family and friends. So when things suddenly changed for her, she continued to live as she had been beautifully living. Many will say, you know, if you knew you had X number of days to live, what would you do differently? Would you go visit the Grand Canyon? Would you fly to Paris, France? And the truth is, we do know our days are limited and that we'll stand before the Lord very shortly in the scheme of things. So how are we living and choosing? How are we spending these days? Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 678 says, Following in the steps of the prophets and John the Baptist, Jesus announced the judgment of the last day in his preaching. Then will the conduct of each one and the secrets of hearts be brought to light. Then will the culpable unbelief that counted the offer of God's grace as nothing be condemned. 
Our attitude about our neighbor will disclose acceptance or refusal of grace and divine love. On the last day, Jesus will say, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Paragraph 679 goes on to say, The Son did not come to judge, but to save and to give the life he has in himself. By rejecting grace in this life, one already judges oneself, receives according to one's works, and can even condemn oneself for all eternity by rejecting the spirit of love. So we're always accepting and rejecting that grace, and as a result, judging ourselves. And that acceptance and rejection of grace, while sometimes big and stark and dramatic, is often small and subtle and not so dramatic. Paragraph 659, partway through, says, But during the 40 days, so after Christ resurrects from the dead and continues to walk among uh, his disciples, the Catechism says, But during the 40 days when he eats and drinks familiarly with his disciples and teaches them about the kingdom, his glory remains veiled under the appearance of ordinary humanity. If you look at one of the footnotes for that paragraph, so footnote 534, a number of scripture passages are referenced. And one of them, Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 15, is a reference to Christ's appearance to the men on the road to Emmaus. This is a great passage for a number of reasons, but for our purposes, it points to the everydayness of God's revelation and his closeness and action in our lives. So Jesus veiled under the ordinariness of, of human life, he's walking and chatting with these men. There's this very simple, pleasant, natural back and forth, and it's not until they stop and Christ breaks bread that their eyes are opened. They realize that they've been conversing with Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself. Christ disappears. Later in the passage, then, he appears in their midst. The men are startled. Christ says, peace. Then as Luke chapter 24, verses 41 through 43 recounts, Jesus asks if anyone has something to eat. The men give him a piece of quote-unquote baked fish, and then he takes it and he eats it in front of them. For whatever reason, this line about the baked fish just gets me every time. In the midst of this beautiful work of art, the Bible, with so much highfalutin poetic language, talking about these big, beautiful, grand things, we get this account, which to me is very homely and cozy. It's as if Jesus turns to the disciples and says, um, hey, does anyone have a crock pot going? Because I'm a little hungry. And I believe in this, Scripture affirms that, that Jesus is right there in the midst of our walks and our eating of bread and fish, speaking to us, opening the meaning of his word to us and inviting us to be in relationship with him, to say yes to him, to choose him in our day-to-day -day words and actions and choices. What a gift that is. Again, the catechism references uh, this, this stark end, this final moment, which is a little terrifying because at our final judgment, that will be it. There's no more choosing. However, we get lots of moments along the way. And we can pray for the grace to respond well in each moment. So I, Rebecca Dougherty, I can't do much about the political climate in the United States. I can't do much about scandals that break out in the Catholic Church. And I can't do much about some of the annoying traits in my neighbors. But I can do a whole lot 
about the political climate in my home, about the scandal I may cause my domestic church in my marriage and family. I can do a whole lot about the annoying traits in my own self. A few months ago for my 40th birthday, uh, Dan and I went away for the weekend to this great place up in the Catskill Mountains, and our children stayed home. And in the midst of that weekend, we ended up having a big argument about something. And after we got home, we must have referenced it in front of the kids, this fight we had. And so the kids had all kinds of questions. You know, what did you fight about? Um, how did you fight? Who won the fight? You know, are you going to fight again? And it, it kind of like stuck with, with them. So fast forward a month or two, and at some point, uh, Declan, our, our son, was unkind to one of his siblings. And, uh, you know, we reprimanded him for it. And he was really broken up about, I think, getting reprimanded, but also having been unkind. And so Dan adorably sat him down and said, you know what, buddy? We all mess up. Even daddy messes up sometimes. And we have to say we're sorry, you know, give the other person a hug and, and move on. And Declan, you know, kind of looks up into Dan's face and says, you mess up too, daddy? And, and Dan said, I do. He said, oh, like that time you messed up in the Catskills with mommy? And Dan was like, thanks a lot, buddy. <laughs> thanks for the humility there. So we might not contribute to the the political climate of our country or be able to change that, but we can certainly change the climate of our homes. Um, another time, again, this, this argument must have really stuck in our children's minds, even though they weren't there for it. Um, Dan and I were talking seriously about something. We were not fighting, but I guess the, the sternness and the seriousness of our voices pricked the kids' ears and Sophia and Declan come in and go, are you fighting? Okay. So how, how we talk, how we act, might cause scandal. It, it wasn't scandalous what we were talking about, but might cause scandal in our little domestic church, and we have control over that. And then lastly, I have, again, control over my own annoying traits. Um, I'm a very particular person who does things in particular ways, but I'm trying to let go of that and allow the kids to do more and more things for themselves. Um, and when it doesn't matter how well they do it. I'm trying just to let go and let them do it. So for example, Peter, our two-year-old, likes to help me make coffee each morning. And as you can imagine, with a two-year-old, the coffee grounds are all over the floor, the counter, you know, underneath the filter. So they're then dripping into the coffee pot and it's like, oh. Um, so one time, again, Dan and I come home from something. The kids were with a babysitter and um, Sophia was recounting some task she and the babysitter had done and she said, yeah, I forget what the task was, but she said, yeah, mommy, she let me do it. And she didn't even fix it at the end. And I was like, oh my gosh, so I'm so sorry. Kids pick up on everything. So she has picked up on the fact that, you know, I correct or clean up or kind of do things my way at the end. So I might not have control over the annoying traits of my neighbor, but I certainly have them have control over my own annoying traits or perfectionistic tendencies in this this case. You might be familiar with Matthew Kelly, a popular author and speaker who talked about this person who was in search on a quest for the perfect church. So he was looking for a church that had lively music and good preaching, um, that had fabulous ministry opportunities and, and good community opportunities to have coffee and donuts after mass and grow in fellowship. 
And as this man visited parish after parish after parish, he finally landed on a church which he thought ticked all the boxes. Okay, this place had, again, good preaching, really inspiring music, um, good ministry opportunities, opportunities for growth in, in fellowship and, and personal and communal virtue. And Matthew Kelly ends his story by saying, and the moment this man found and then joined the perfect church, it was no longer perfect because he was a part of it. He, a sinful human being who does not have it all together, who is working his way through life decision by decision by the grace of God, was not yet perfect. And so he made that church imperfect. So as we think, think about and read this catechism selection today, um, which talks about, again, stark realities, final judgment, the end times, um, the, the church is not being a drama mama, okay, making a big deal out of nothing. These are big deals. It's a big deal what we choose because our choices form and define who we are and have eternal consequences. Simultaneously, those choices, those judgments come to us moment by moment, quietly, humbly, boringly, and by God's grace, we can choose and act well. So again, paragraph 679 says, the son did not come to judge, but to save and to give the life he has in himself. By rejecting grace in this life, one already judges oneself, receives according to one's works, and can even condemn oneself for all eternity by rejecting the spirit of love. By the grace of God, we can flip around these words and say, by accepting grace in this life, one already judges oneself receives according to one's works, and can even be redeemed for all eternity by accepting the spirit of love. So let's pray for the grace this week to be open to all that God wants to do in us and through us, in and through the simple acts and choices of life. And let's choose one concrete thing to do between now and next Monday, or a week from whenever you're listening to this. And we can do that by considering maybe some of the grand goals we have for our spiritual life. So fasting Wednesdays and Fridays, getting up and praying early in the morning, going to daily mass or something else. And let's choose one day to do it once. So I invite each of us to write down a day, a time, and a duration of one thing we would like to work on, one human act, one choice, um, to work on this week in a very small, simple, concrete way. Then set your alarm or write it on your calendar and let it help reveal and further define who you are. We'll take a brief break and then return to read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 659 through 682. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 659 through 682. Article 6. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So then, the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. 
Christ's body was glorified at the moment of his resurrection, as proved by the new and supernatural properties it subsequently and permanently enjoys. But during the 40 days when he eats and drinks familiarly with his disciples and teaches them about the kingdom, his glory remains veiled under the appearance of ordinary humanity. Jesus' final apparition ends with the irreversible entry of his humanity into divine glory, symbolized by the cloud and by heaven, where he is seated from that time forward at God's right hand. Only in a holy, exceptional, and unique way would Jesus show himself to Paul as to one untimely born in a last apparition that established him as an apostle. The veiled character of the glory of the risen one during this time is intimated in his mysterious words to Mary Magdalene. I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This indicates a difference in manifestation between the glory of the risen Christ and that of the Christ exalted to the Father's right hand, a transition marked by the historical and transcendent event of the ascension. This final stage stays closely linked to the first, that is, to his descent from heaven in the Incarnation. Only the one who came from the Father can return to the Father, Christ Jesus. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of, Son of Man. Left to its own natural powers, humanity does not have access to the Father's house, to God's life and happiness. Only Christ can open to man such access that we, his members, might have confidence that we too shall go where he, our head and our source, has preceded us. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. The lifting up of Jesus on the cross signifies and announces his lifting up by his ascension into heaven, and indeed begins it. Jesus Christ, the one priest of the new and eternal covenant, entered not into a sanctuary made by human hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. There, Christ permanently exercises his priesthood, for he always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. As high priest of the good things to come, he is the center and the principal actor of the liturgy that honors the Father in heaven. Henceforth, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. By the Father's right hand, we understand the glory and honor of divinity, where he who exists as Son of God before all ages, indeed as God, of one being with the Father, is seated bodily after he became incarnate and his flesh was glorified. Being seated at the Father's right hand signifies the inauguration of the Messiah's kingdom, the fulfillment of the prophet Daniel's vision concerning the Son of Man. To him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. After this event, the apostles became witnesses of the kingdom that will have no end. In brief... Christ's ascension marks the definitive entrance of Jesus' humanity into God's heavenly domain, whence he will come again. This humanity, in the meantime, hides him from the eyes of men. Jesus Christ, the head of the church, precedes us into the Father's glorious kingdom so that we, the members of his body, may live in the hope of one day being with him forever. Jesus Christ, having entered the sanctuary of heaven once and for all, intercedes constantly for us as the mediator who assures us of the permanent outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Article 7. From thence he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will come again in glory. Christ already reigns through the church. 
Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Christ's ascension into heaven signifies his participation in his humanity, in God's power and authority. Jesus Christ is Lord. He possesses all power in heaven and on earth. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, for the Father has put all things under his feet. Christ is Lord of the cosmos and of history. In him, human history and indeed all creation are set forth and transcendently fulfilled. As Lord, Christ is also head of the church, which is his body, taken up to heaven and glorified after he had thus fully accomplished his mission. Christ dwells on earth in his church. The redemption is the source of the authority that Christ, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, exercises over the church. The kingdom of Christ is already present in mystery, on earth, the seed and the beginning of the kingdom. Since the ascension, God's plan has entered into its fulfillment. We are already at the last hour. Already the final age of the world is with us, and the renewal of the world is irrevocably underway. It is even now anticipated in a certain real way, for the church on earth is endowed already with a sanctity that is real but imperfect. Christ's kingdom already manifests its presence through the miraculous signs that attend its proclamation by the church. Until all things are subjected to him. Though already present in his church, Christ's reign is nevertheless yet to be fulfilled with power and great glory by the king's return to earth. This reign is still under attack by the evil powers, even though they have been defeated definitively by Christ's Passover. Until everything is subject to him, until there be realized new heavens and a new earth in which justice dwells, the pilgrim church in her sacraments and institutions, which belong to this present age, carries the mark of this world, which will pass, and she herself takes her place among the creatures which groan and travail yet, and await the revelation of the sons of God. That is why Christians pray above all in the Eucharist to hasten Christ's return by saying to him, Maranatha, our Lord, come. Before his ascension, Christ affirmed that the hour had not yet come for the glorious establishment of the messianic kingdom awaited by Israel, which, according to the prophets, was to bring all men the definitive order of justice, love, and peace. According to the Lord, the present time is the time of the spirit and of witness, but also a time still marked by distress and the trial of evil, which does not spare the church and ushers in the struggles of the last days. It is a time of waiting and watching. The Glorious Advent of Christ, the Hope of Israel Since the ascension, Christ's coming in glory has been imminent, even though it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. This eschatological coming could be accomplished at any moment, even if both it and the final trial that will precede it are delayed. The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel, for a hardening has come upon part of Israel in their unbelief toward Jesus. St. Peter says to the Jews of Jerusalem after Pentecost, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for establishing all that God spoke, by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. St. Paul echoes him, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? The full inclusion of the Jews in the Messiah's salvation in the wake of the full number of the Gentiles 
will enable the people of God to achieve the measure of the stature of the fullness, fullness of Christ, in which God may be all in all. The Church's Ultimate Trial Before Christ's second coming, the Church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception, offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. The supreme religious deception is that of the Antichrist, a pseudo-messianism by which man glorifies himself in place of God and of his Messiah come in the flesh. The Antichrist's deception already begins to take shape in the world every time the claim is made to realize within history that messianic hope which can only be realized beyond history through the eschatological judgment. The Church has rejected even modified forms of this falsification of the kingdom to come under the name of millenarianism, especially the intrinsically perverse political form of a secular messianism. The Church will enter the glory of the kingdom only through this final Passover, when she will follow her Lord in his death and resurrection. The kingdom will be fulfilled then, not by a historic triumph of the church through a progressive ascendancy, but only by God's victory over the final unleashing of evil, which will cause his bride to come down from heaven. God's triumph over the revolt of evil will take the form of the last judgment after the final cosmic upheaval of this passing world. To judge the living and the dead, Following the steps of the prophets and John the Baptist, Jesus announced the judgment of the last day in his preaching. Then will the conduct of each one and the secrets of hearts be brought to light. Then will the culpable unbelief that counted the offer of God's grace as nothing be condemned. Our attitude about our neighbor will disclose acceptance or refusal of grace and divine love. On the last day, Jesus will say, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Christ is Lord of eternal life. Full right to pass definitive judgment on the works and hearts of men belongs to him as Redeemer of the world. He acquired this right by his cross. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. Yet the Son did not come to judge, but to save and to give the life he has in himself. By rejecting grace in this life, one already judges oneself, receives according to one's works, and can even condemn oneself for all eternity by rejecting the spirit of love. In brief, Christ the Lord already reigns through the church, but all the things of this world are not yet subjected to him. The triumph of Christ's kingdom will not come about without one last assault by the powers of evil. On judgment day at the end of the world, Christ will come in glory to achieve the definitive triumph of good over evil, which, like the wheat and the tares, have grown up together in the course of history. When he comes at the end of time to judge the living and the dead, the glorious Christ will reveal the secret disposition of hearts and will render to each man according to his works and according to his acceptance or refusal of grace. This brings us to the end of our catechism selection for the day, our discussion for the day. Thanks so much for joining me for another week of Catholic Light. Between now and next week, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. And I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.